We're going to be uh, switching speakers this week with Zev Rosenberg. And it's sort of a, the, the second part of uh, the Reformation. We studied the, kind of the outcomes first, the creeds. And now we're going to look at what came historically before and who. And uh, Zev's going to present that over the next four weeks or so. And with that in mind, let's, let's open in prayer. Father God, we, we come again to seek to know you, to know more about you. But let us always be cognizant of the Reformation and what it really calls us to be. And that is to be in relationship with you. And while we can get caught up in our ideas and thoughts and what to say and write down, it is how we are called to be with you and in relationship with others that the Reformation reminds us of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. My portion is due to uh, be the historical section of this presentation. And um, I love history. And as some of you may know, I also love to talk. So to try to get this honed down to a manageable proportion, uh, I have had to discipline myself to limit myself to the key figures, who were they, and in each case, what was their big idea? What was their big idea? Now, the important thing to keep in mind about history, two lessons I've learned about history. One was from a marvelous film that was written, produced, directed, and acted by Peter Ustinov called Romanoff and Juliet. I don't know how many of you ever saw that film. It's not one of the more widely known films. But he plays the prime minister of a small Alpine republic that on a key Security Council showdown vote between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, he abstains and then retires to his uh, mountain kingdom, mountain principality, to sort of try to play them off against each other. And at one point, he has to move a historical festival. And his secretary is saying, but that's not celebrated on that day. And he said, well, the advantage of history is that it's flexible. <laughs> and as the authors of the great British satire 1066 and all that once said, history isn't what you think. History is what you can remember. So hopefully, we will be touching chords of memory. So I've called this series, What's the Big Idea? What's the Big Idea? And we're going to start, if I can get this to work, there we go, with a person I know you've all heard of, Marsilius of Padua. How many of you have ever heard of Marsilius of Padua? One person. Two people, okay? One of them is a judge. Because Marsilius of Padua is probably best known for his legal theories. He was born Marsilio de Minardini in about 1275 in Padua. And, whoops, I'm hitting the wrong button there. And he died about 1342. His major work is called Defensor Pacis, 
Defensor Pacis, which means defender of the peace, was written in 1324. So in other words, nearly 200 years before Martin Luther. Okay, so we are reaching back a bit. Um, The context of the work was the conflict between Pope John XXII and King Ludwig of Bavaria, who had been elected Holy Roman Emperor. And it was one of those periodic conflicts during the Middle Ages between empire and papacy as to which should be top dog. It was written to refute papal claims to something they called plenitudo potestatis, the plenitude of power. The claim was by the Roman papacy that they had preeminent authority in all matters, both civil and ecclesiastical, and that therefore no ruler actually ruled or held office without papal approval, and that therefore they could, they could, they could raise up someone, they could depose someone. Okay, come on. There we go. Whoop. Parts of Defensor Pacis and some of his views were condemned as heretical by John the 22nd in 1327. Of course, he was writing against John, so, and against the papacy. So, that doesn't surprise us. Whoops. I'll get this one of these days. Okay. So, what is his big idea? The big idea in Defensor Pacis, and one that will weigh huge throughout the Reformation, is the supremacy of the civil authority over the church. It's not just that civil authority and civil law are autonomous from church interference, the civil authority is actually the supreme authority in the land, even over the church. And I hit the wrong button again. I'm doing that a lot. For uh, Marsilius, the sovereignty of the people and the civil law is absolutely important. The people are sovereign. The civil law is sovereign. The state exists, as the title indicated, as the defender of public peace. The defender of public peace, hence the title Defensor Pacis. He further points out, through careful study of scripture, that Jesus never claimed to possess any temporal power at all. Can anybody think of passages in Scripture where, in fact, Jesus perhaps claimed not to exercise temporal authority? Yes? Excuse me? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's? No. There are several, a couple of passages that are really clear about this. What did Jesus say to Pilate in John's Gospel? Well, it went further. What did he say about his kingdom? 
My kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, in other words, if I did have any temporal authority, my followers would be fighting so that I would not be delivered to you. What were, how many people remember the third temptation, at least in Matthew's gospel, it's the third temptation in the wilderness. What did Satan do? Yeah, he let it, no, it was not at the temple. He let him up on a high mountain. What did Satan show him? All the kingdoms of the world, okay? And what did Satan say to Jesus? What? No, what did Satan say to Jesus when he showed him all the kingdoms of the world? He said, these belong to me. I'll give them all to, all to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, did Jesus dispute Satan's ownership of the kingdoms of this world? No, he didn't. In other words, who has preeminent power in this world over all the kingdoms of the world? I hate to say this, but this is what we find in Matthew. It's Satan. He owns them all. Okay? So Jesus never claimed any temporal power. And furthermore, he didn't intend his church to exercise any temporal power. The okay, so scripture teaches that church should be subject to the state, according to Marsilius. That it's actually contrary to scripture for the church to claim any authority over the state. That is, and here's the key punchline, in both temporal and spiritual matters. In both temporal and spiritual matters. In other words, if your um, uh, session decided to pass a motion calling for the violent overthrow of the U.S. government, can they claim separation of church and state? No. That's still treason. That is still treason. In fact, you could pretty well expect to lose your tax-exempt status. All authority in the church rests with the whole body of the faithful, first and foremost. The secular ruler as the people's representative. Not the pope, not the bishops, not the clergy. And then general councils called by the secular ruler. Now, where is Marsilius of Padua getting this last idea that the only authority, authoritative general councils are those that are called by the ruler? Think back. What was the first general council of the church? Constantine called it the church, the council of Nicaea, who presided over the Council of Nicaea. It was Constantine himself. 
This is the irony. The ecumenical council that gave us our creed was presided over by a layperson who had not yet even been baptized. And therefore, the whole idea here is that unless a general council is called by the secular authority, it has no authority at all. And all of these councils that were called by the popes, what authority do they have? Nothing. He uh, didn't stop there. He denies to the pope, the bishops, or clergy any coercive jurisdiction or any right to pronounce in temporal affairs. And here he's not talking about whether or not, the, a, say, a bishop can condemn a particular law as unjust. What a bishop cannot do, or the pope cannot do, is declare a civil law invalid. Okay? The civil law is the law of the land. The church has no say whatsoever, according to Marsilius, in the enactment or repeal of any civil law. That is strictly a matter for the secular authority. He also denies them any authority to excommunicate, to impose interdicts, or any other imposed interpretations of divine law. In other words, the church can yell and scream, the law of God requires that this be done. What authority does that have in the state? Zero. No coercive power. In other words, what power does the church have at all when it comes to civil matters, temporal matters? The power of persuasion alone. The power of moral suasion alone. Keep in mind, this is 1324. He favored suppression of tithes and seizure uh, by the secular authority of most church poverty. He was a firm believer in apostolic poverty. And he felt that the state should confiscate most church lands because what was the single most important basis of power in the, in the pre-modern world? Land tenure. Land tenure. The church owned vast extents of land which were exempt from state taxation. And what is more, people had to pay tithes to the church. So that, you know, the church was in a very comfortable financial position. And what he said is, no. Now, does any of this sound familiar to you? Does any of this sound familiar to you? Well, we're not quite there yet. Okay, it's not separation of church and state. It's subordination of church to state. Well, if you were Anglican, you would recognize this immediately. Okay, why? 
Oh, yeah, the Pope has no more than honorary preeminence. Almost missed that point. How many of you saw the series Wolf Hall on PBS? The main character there, Thomas Cromwell, and it's hard to see this picture. That's Holbein's portrait of him. Um, Thomas Cromwell was the principal architect of the policy of royal supremacy in Henry VIII's split with Rome. And he paid in 1535, one year after, after the Supreme Head Act, he paid William Marshall to translate Defensor Pacis into English and publish it in order to bolster his case for the royal supremacy. He had read Defensor Pacis. His entire program was putting into legislation and putting into action what Marsilius of Padua had uh, advocated. Now, I want to pause here for a moment, ask, do you have any questions or comments about this? Was he a Christian? Yes. Marsilius of Padua was a good, loyal Catholic. Okay. Not loyal to the Pope, but loyal to his emperor, and he was a communicating Catholic. Any other questions? Yeah. He received communion when he was supposed to, which was very infrequently in the Roman Catholic Church. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's right. Stay tuned for session number five. Stay tuned. But obviously, this raises a question, you know, what's the upside of this idea? <coughs> of the supremacy of the civil authority over the church. What's the upside? Anybody care to comment? Okay, so everybody has to obey the same law. Everybody's under the same authority. I'm surprised that the judges and the legal minds here are not raising their hands. The people, through their representatives, are recognized as having power. Okay. Obviously, one of the key ideas here is the rule of law. And law here means not ecclesiastical law or divine law, but civil law. Yes. Yes, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay. What's the downside here? What's the downside? What? Going back and forth. Okay. Who
who is the single most important person in England in nominating the next Archbishop of Canterbury? No. The patronage secretary to the prime minister. The Archbishop of Canterbury, indeed most bishoprics, if are essentially selected out of you know, possible candidates by the patronage secretary of the prime minister, and it is the prime minister who nominates the candidate to the crown. The crown appointment is an essentially a formality. If the Church of England wanted to revise its prayer book, who gets to rule on whether or not that prayer book revision is approved? Parliament. It has to go through as an act of Parliament. In 1928, the Church of England attempted to revise the Book of Common Prayer. It was defeated in Parliament in part because it allowed for reservation of the sacrament. And that was considered too popish by more conservative members of Parliament. And so an attempt to revise the prayer book in 1928 was scotched. When the liturgical movement, which gave us our current, such current things as the Lutheran Book of Worship, the new Book of Common Prayer, American Book of Common Prayer, the, uh, uh, for that matter, the Presbyterian prayer book, worship book. Um, when that movement had done its best in the Church of England, rather than have to face a parliamentary vote, they came up with an alternative service book. So, literally, with the various different rites in the alternative service book, you can go to a parish in England on a Sunday morning and you don't know which of about four or five different rites are gonna be used. So it gets to be a bit crazy. Gets to be a bit crazy. In other words, the church in this case becomes a department of state. You carry this idea through to its logical extreme and you can have such a thing as many European governments do where they have a cabinet minister for religious affairs where essentially what happens in the church or in the churches is basically a government decision. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind either. I don't know about you. The next person that we go to is one that I'm sure all of you know something about. John Wycliffe, sometimes called the morning star of the Reformation. He was born sometime in the 1320s in Yorkshire, England. So keep in mind, he came from the North Country. He died on December 31st, 1384, at his living in Lutterworth in Leicestershire, England. And it's interesting, he's one of the few people we really have a very precise date about in all of this time period. And he died on New Year's Eve, 1384. However, the church wasn't done with Wycliffe. At the Council of Constance, Council of Constance in 1415, 
This was a council that was called to heal a schism in the church where you had a pope and an anti-pope. Council met, essentially deposed both of them. They also, we'll get to this under Jan Hus, summoned Jan Hus and condemned him as a heretic and burned him at the stake, but they didn't leave Wycliffe alone either. They posthumously condemned him as a heretic and Wycliffe's remains were disinterred burned and his ashes scattered. He wrote a book called De Ecclesia of the Church. He was a scholastic type. He wrote it in 1379. He claimed the supremacy of the king over the priesthood. Begin to sound familiar? He also rejected purgatory, clerical celibacy, pilgrimages, selling of indulgences, praying to saints. His other positions included a belief in predestination and the existence of an invisible church of the elect as opposed to the visible church on earth. He also rejected transubstantiation He said, there is no scriptural authority whatever for the papacy. And he rejected monasticism. Pretty wholesale rejection. But what was his big idea? What is Wycliffe primarily known for, folks? Anybody? Translating the Bible into English, the first English version of the Bible that was begun, really, by Wycliffe. And so his big idea is the Bible in the vernacular, in other words, in the language of the people. Um, He translated the New Testament from the Vulgate into English in 1382. What's the Vulgate? The Vulgate was the Latin version in official use by the church. And it was the only authorized version of the Bible and mere snippets of it were read at the liturgy in any church service. And many of the priests who said Mass didn't even understand Latin. Um, And certainly the vast majority. What, uh, What time period are we talking about? 1384? We're talking about Middle English. We're talking about the England of Chaucer, okay? In fact, Chaucer and Wycliffe were pretty much contemporaries. So he's translating from the Latin version of the Bible into a Middle English version of the Bible. When that April with his shorter sota, the drocht of March, a purser to the rota, and bothered every vine in switch liqueur, of which verture engendered is the floor. You know, did anybody understand what I just said? <laughs> That's the opening of the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer. Um, God knows, I, you know, I have a memory that is, uh, as you know, I can remember things in inverse proportion to their importance. 
The Old Testament was translated by associates like John Purvey in 1384, and then the whole thing was revised by Purvey and others in 1388 and 1395. Part of the problem is Wycliffe, they think, was pretty much responsible for the translation of the New Testament. The people who translated the Old Testament were again translating from the Latin, not from the Hebrew, and were very poor English stylists. So if you're thinking of running out and getting a copy of the, of the Wycliffe Bible, uh, I wouldn't bother if I were you. Okay. And one of the other problems with it is what hadn't been invented yet? The printing press. So it was circulated in manuscript. I think they found something like 184 manuscript versions of the Wycliffe Bible are still in existence. But, you know, when you consider the population of England, <coughs> this isn't much. It was not a highly literate age. And, you know, it's a laborious process <coughs> excuse me, to copy manuscripts. So you're not going to get widespread knowledge of the Bible in the vernacular this way. Now, the key concept that we have as a result of this is that Scripture was seen by Wycliffe to be the only reliable guide to truth about God. Can anybody tell me the two-word phrase we use for this? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone as the rule of faith. You're basically, you've got this towards the end of the 14th century. Okay, this is the first of the key cardinal principles of, reform, of, of Protestantism. Sola Scriptura has already been articulated at this point. Now, there are some positives and negatives to be gleaned from this as well. What are the positives about having Scripture translated into your own language? You get to read it. Can anybody think of the downsides? What? You can interpret it yourself. Everybody can come up with his own interpretation of Scripture. In other words, what is the check on the misreading and misinterpretation of Scripture? There really is none. There really is none at this point. Uh, I think it was Tyndall who later remarked to a bishop who had burned some copies of his New Testament saying, I shall make it that any plow boy in, the in, the, in, in, in England shall know more of the Bible than thou dost. Okay, the idea is the people of God are now able to read the Bible for themselves. But what that also means is they're able to make up their own minds in their own consciences about what to believe. What would be the result in terms of life in the church and life in a state where church and state are not separate? You get anarchy. 
you get anarchy. Now, Wycliffe's followers were known as Lollards. This was a term of abuse, sort of those who mumble, um, and because they were quoting scripture. But he didn't have that much of an influence in England, you know, in his lifetime or shortly thereafter, though the, the, the idea was around. The ideas were around. During his lifetime, he enjoyed the support of such powerful political figures as John of Gaunt. Uh, but after his death, um, uh, he was devoid of that political protection, and that's why the Council of Constance was able to have his body disinterred and burned. Any questions, comments? Yes. Why wouldn't the government have They did. They did at the behest of the church. Okay. Now, if you were accused of heresy in the Middle Ages, uh, how would the process against you have worked? You would likely have been apprehended by the church authorities and questioned forcefully to try to get you to recant. Why? What did the church want to do for you by these methods of forceful inter for interrogation? Save you. Save you by doing what? Getting you to do what? Recant your heresy. So if you were obstinate and refused to recant, what was the next step? And who carried that out? Not the church. You were handed over to, this, over to the civil authority for punishment. Okay. As late as, again, this was something that came out in, the, in Wolf Hall, very different you know, depiction of Thomas More. As Lord Chancellor, Thomas More was very busy torturing and burning Protestants at the stake in Henrician England. Okay. So, uh, but in fact, the whole idea of translating the Bible into the vernacular was considered heresy. Now we're going to come, however, to one person who definitely was strongly influenced by Wycliffe and put his ideas into practice. This is not a person I think many of you uh, are familiar with. His name is Jan Hus. Jan Hus, and the name is sometimes anglicized as John Hus. Okay. He was born in Husinets, Bohemia in 1369. Bohemia was part of the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire. And he was burned at the stake at the Council of Constance on July 6, 1415. So he basically was heavily influenced by Wycliffe. He is the first actual reformer of a church. So we usually think of Martin Luther as the first reformer of the church. 
In fact, it was Jan Hus who carried out a reformation of the church in Bohemia and Moravia. He was influenced by and repeated the positions of John Wycliffe. His followers were known as Hussites after him. And if you were Czech, your blood would be pounding right now in fondness because these are patriotic heroes to the Czech people, the Hussites. They rebelled against their Roman Catholic rulers after Hus's execution. And here we get to your new word for the day. Defenestration. Anybody know what defenestration is? Throwing out of a window. Yes. Throwing out of a window. <laughs> and there were two incidents that are called defenestrations of Prague. One was when the church authorities tried to arrive in Prague to have the civil authorities arrest the Hussites. And the Hussites who controlled the city council unceremoniously threw them out of an upper window to their death. A later defenestration of Prague, which is usually called the defenestration of Prague, sparked a certain incident we call the Thirty Years' War, which was one of the bloodiest and most devastating wars in European history. Then they had the temerity to throw out of the window the representatives of the emperor. Okay. Now, the Hussites survived five papal crusades in the years 1420 to 1431 called the Hussite Wars. And a century later, as many as 90% of the Czech people were Hussites. So Jan Hus actually did a very effective job of reforming the church. Now, there were a couple of branches. The militant radical brand, who had been responsible for that first defenestration of Prague and the resistance to the Crusades against them, were known as the Taborites. Anybody ever heard of the Taborites? They uh, took refuge in a, in a mountain fortress, which they called Tabor. They were one of the radical sort of apocalyptic groups. In the, in the late Middle Ages, they were sort of like the Branch Davidians, if anybody remembers that crew. They saw themselves as participating in the preparation for the second coming of Christ, which involved the destruction not only of church property, but of clerics. The more moderate branch were known as the Utraquists. And the Utraquists basically were called that because they demanded communion in both kinds. If you were, first of all, what was your, in the Middle Ages, what would be your relationship to the ceremony of the Mass? Anybody? The ceremony of the Mass. A typical layperson, what would you do? What? Observe, thank you. The proper term is that people would go to hear Mass. And a cathedral in the Middle Ages 
was largely a public forum. People went there, stood around the nave, and conducted public business until they heard the Sanctus bells from any one of a number of the side aisles or chapels or you know chantries. And at that point, everybody would go silent and watch as the host was elevated by the priest at the words of institution. And then the bells would ring and they would go back to their business. And that was about as close as the average layperson got to the Eucharist on a regular basis. When they had made confession and were ready to properly receive communion, what did they receive? Only the bread, not the wine. Part of the result of the concept of transubstantiation was a vast fear of superstitious misuse of communion. In fact, it got to the point where in the late Middle Ages, you could not go to the altar rail to receive communion and hold out your hands for the bread. Because the fear is, what would you do with it? Put it in your pocket, take it home, and use it for various magical purposes. So, you had to stick out your tongue, and the priest put the host on your tongue. Okay. Whereupon it promptly turned back into library paste. Now, the Utraquists were sort of savagely repressed during the Thirty Years' War, so that the, you know, Czechoslovakia became pretty much Catholic again, but they did have successors and survivors. The Moravian Church, whoops, also known as the Unitas Fratrem, or Unity of Brethren, are their successors to this day. Um, anybody know what probably is their main hub in the United States? Wisconsin. Not Wisconsin. What? Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I went to a uh, work a training um, given by the Alban Institute that was held at Moravian College in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And believe you me. That is a big thing among them. Okay, now, the reason I'm saying all of this is that what's the big idea that we owe to Jan Hus? It is communion is for the people. Communion is for the people. Okay, because up until this point, what had happened to communion is instead of turning into, you know, instead of being as it was, a celebration of the body of Christ, of the body of the people gathered, it had become a private devotion of the priests. If you were a priest, you were expected to say Mass daily. That was your job, to say Mass daily. Whether you even had any idea what the hell you were supposed to be doing, that doesn't make any difference. Just say the words and do the actions. 
How many people know what the word hocus pocus comes from? What? Hoc est corpus meum. That was the words of institution. This is my body in Latin, hoc est corpus meum. And that's what the priest would be saying as he held up the bread at the elevation. Hoc est corpus meum. And that gives us our word hocus pocus. Okay. Now, Hus denied transubstantiation. He condemned private masses and the mass as a personal devotion for the priest. Okay. And he insisted on communion in both kinds for the laity. That's why his more moderate followers were called utraquis, which means communion in both kinds. Okay? So the big idea is communion for the people. This statement pretty much sums up Hus's idea and attitude to the late medieval Roman Catholic Church and would probably have been echoed both by Marsilius of Padua and certainly by John Wycliffe. One pays for confession, for mass, for the sacrament, for indulgences, for churching a woman, for a blessing, for burials, for funeral services and prayers. The very last penny which an old woman is hidden in her bundle for fear of thieves or robbery will not be saved. The villainous priest will grab it. Okay, not a very high estimation. So, here's your take home for today. Today's big ideas. Supremacy of the church over the civil authority, uh, uh, over the, uh, su- supremacy of the civil authority over the church. Whoops, boy, did I misspeak. Supremacy of the civil authority over the church. The vernacular Bible and communion is for the people. One of the greatest statements uh, I ever heard about that, every year in the Diocese of West Virginia, we had an annual Lutheran, Anglican, Roman Catholic conference because West Virginia pretty much was one Roman Catholic diocese and one Lutheran synod as well as one Episcopal diocese. And it was a marvelous opportunity where we would get together and talk about usually one idea and one year we had communion and the Roman Catholic presenter put it this way. He says, the people of God have a right to Eucharistize. They have a right, R-I-G-H-T, to Eucharistize. In other words, to celebrate the Eucharist together. In other words, as we put it, communion is a right, R-I-G-H-T, of the people, not a right, R-I-T-E, of the priest. Who does it belong to? Another way of looking at it is this. And this is, again, another of the unfortunate fruits of the concept of transubstantiation is the belief in the absolute sanctity of the consecrated elements. How many people here remember What's My Line? With John Charles Daly as your host, 
okay? I grew up watching that. We thought my dad should go on that. He manufactured com uh, commercial poultry incubators, and we thought that would be a really interesting thing to have on What's My Line. And you remember after they entered in sign, uh, and signed in, John Charles Daly asked them two questions about their occupation. Do you remember what those two questions were? Are you self-employed or are you employed? And do you deal in a product or a service? Do you deal in a product or a service? Basically, the late medieval church would have said, we deal in a product. We deal in the production of a sacred artifact called the consecrated host. And only certain people can do it. This goes back to 1215, to the Fourth Lateran Council. And the third paragraph of the first canon reads this. There is one universal church of the faithful, outside of which there is absolutely no salvation, in which there is the same priest and sacrifice, Jesus Christ, whose body and blood are truly contained in the sacrament of the altar under the forms of bread and wine. The bread being changed transubstantiatio by divine power into the body and the wine into the blood so that to realize the mystery of unity may, we may receive of him what he has received of us. And this sacrament no one can effect except the priest who has been duly ordained in accordance with the keys of the church, which Jesus Christ himself gave to the apostles and their successors. Okay? Now, what was the consequence if you did not receive communion at some time in your life? Anybody? You were damned. More than just you weren't saved, you went to hell. You went to hell. And who controlled whether or not you received communion? The priest did. The priest did. In other words, the person who really determined whether you went to heaven or hell was not yourself. It was not your own personal faith. It was whether or not the priest determined you through your confession, which he also charged for, were worthy of being saved by receiving communion. Okay, we have a few minutes left for comments, questions, discussion. Yes? Um, well, People had all kinds of curious ideas about blood. And so it was decided that it would be better for the priest alone to receive the wine, which had become the blood of Christ, rather than to have the people harbor crazy ideas about what it was that they were receiving and what it did. But basically, it was a kind of thing, the whole idea was you limited access by the laity to as minimal a participation 
in the Eucharist as you could do. The idea is Eucharist was to be a rare event, communion was to be a rare event, event and um, limited in the public's access to it. Yes? Excuse me? Oh, yes, churching of women. After a woman gave birth, she was naturally considered unclean. And so you had to wait a certain period, in which case you could bring them into the church, because until that churching of women, they were not allowed on church property. Yes. I'm sure the women in the room would agree with you. If what she gave birth to is unclean, then there's nobody clean. You got that right. Okay. One of the things we need to remember, and we'll get to this when we get in the fourth week of my presentation, we get to the Radical Reformation. We tend to think of baptism as something that's done to children, don't we? But if you look at the structure of our baptismal ceremony, one thing is very clear. It is structured around the idea of baptism of believers on profession of faith. Okay, so this is critical. And what we have to realize is that before Constantine, the norm that had developed is, if you came into the church and said, I want to be baptized, even if you had sincere faith in Jesus Christ, you weren't immediately baptized. Instead, you had to go through a two to three year process of the catechumenate, in which you were rigorously trained and formed by your catechist. And in all that time, you would never even have seen the Eucharist because before the liturgy of the table, the catechumens were dismissed to meet with their catechist. Okay. When your catechist determined or discerned that Christian character had been formed in you, then you became a candidate for baptism and were prepared for the rite during Lent, which was a season of preparation for baptism, Beginning on Thursday evening, Monday, Thursday, you would have begun a 72-hour fast. And you would have been baptized at the Easter vigil. And you would have been, the baptistry would have been in a separate building. You would have been clothed in a white robe and anointed with oil of chrism, brought into the church, be given the right hand of fellowship, and you would then receive communion for the very first time. You had never even seen the rite. And there wouldn't have been a single word about what the rite was or what it meant during your entire preparation for baptism. Instead, during the 50 days of Easter, a period called mystagogy, you would have been taught the meaning of the baptism you had undergone and the communion that you would be receiving daily during the 50 days of Easter. That was how it worked before Constantine. Then Constantine 
became a nominal Christian, I suppose you would say, and made the, uh, the Christian church legal. And all of a sudden, what became the pattern of baptismal practice? You began to have indiscriminate infant baptism. It's not just infant baptism, but indiscriminate infant baptism. And they realized, we don't have a rationale for this. So that great mind of the church, St. Augustine, came up with an idea to rationalize the practice of indiscriminate baptism. Let us say that when you are born, you are born into a humanity that is a damned mass, a massa damnata, okay? And unless you receive baptism, you're going to hell. And therefore, it suddenly became a way to fix the kid. But this idea that somehow or other, like you said, the woman, woman was unclean, the child was unclean, ain't nobody clean, okay? That wasn't there in the primitive church. That wasn't there in the early church. That basically came in after Constantine. So again, perhaps one thing that you need, and this is something we will see the churches struggle with throughout the Reformation is, what is the rationale for retaining infant baptism? Questions? Yes. That actually varies with local practice. What's interesting is that if you were to visit, I remember there was um, a story I heard. When I became the associate at Church of the Ascension in Pueblo, Colorado, an Episcopal church in Pueblo, I was told, did you know that you've got a woman in your parish who's a former Catholic priest? I said, what? I said, well, she was a priest when she was a he. Oh. <laughs> and it turned out there was a priest who had a sex change. And the bishop, now you go to the middle of the country, they get very progressive. And the bishop said to her, I can't give you a parish. But if you want to celebrate, you know, a mass in your home and have people there, I'm not going to stop you. And so she had a regular house church that met for which she provided. And also, it's one of the things, you know, here if I went to our minor basilica of St. John the Baptist, I could not receive communion. If I was going to a Catholic church, especially for an interfaith service in Pueblo, Colorado, I was welcome to receive So it varies between open and closed communion. But there are churches and we need to sort of, you know, why are they saying you have to do it? Because you have to be recognized as part of the one holy Catholic church by their rules.
What? Okay, yeah. Who's going to tell? There was a question over here. Who saw who was in the line of the Old Testament? John Yan Hus. Yeah. They probably would not have put it in terms of prophecy and the biblical concept of prophecy. There was one thing, though, that they did understand is that they knew their Old Testament. A lot of them did know their Old Testament. And, um, but the basic thing that was really used to hammer the church is the New Testament. Because there you have the teachings of Jesus. And they're saying, Jesus doesn't say anything about the Pope. Jesus doesn't say anything about purgatory. Jesus doesn't say anything about indulgences. Jesus doesn't say anything about not giving communion to the people. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, every society has taboos. One of the more interesting books uh, to read. Um, yeah, oh, oh, let me see. I'm trying to remember Mary Taylor's book on the subject, but she quotes a wonderful phrase of G.K. Chesterton. He says, "Dirt is matter out of place." Okay, dirt is matter out of place. There's nothing with, wrong with garden soil in your garden. It's just out of place when it's in the middle of your living room floor. Okay, there's nothing unclean about a toilet provided it's in the bathroom. You don't want it in the kitchen. Yeah. proper thing to take with your mouth, and also being discouraged from drinking wine. I never understood that in the context of my family, but grandparents who didn't do that, my parents didn't do that, so I yeah. was raised to not take the wine. So it gives me some context for that now. Yeah, and in fact, basically, it was Vatican II that really undid a lot of that, but some folks just didn't get the message. Yeah. Okay. Thank you all. Now, the handout you have is your homework. Okay. We are approaching on October 31st, 2017, the 500th anniversary of the posting of these, although they would have been in Latin, on the church door in Wittenberg. These are the 95 theses. I would venture to suggest that many of you have heard of the 95 Theses. You've probably talked about the 95 Theses, but how many of you have actually read them? Hardly anybody. Now, this is five pages, some of which will sound like gobbledygook. Okay? 
What I want you to do, I don't want you to post them on the church door. Okay. What I want you to do is go home and post them on your refrigerator door. In most American homes, that is the door to the sacred space. Post them on the refrigerator door, read them through, and the challenge is, what's the big idea behind this in 10 words or less? What's the big idea behind this in 10 words or less? Thank you.